I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17 this evening. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. As you recall, last week we considered this narrative with Jesus and the centurion. And we learned about the nature of true faith in, that was portrayed in this centurion who, who, who manifested a, a faith that recognized one's unworthiness before God and a faith that was attached to the powerful word of God. And now in our passage, Jesus moved on to the, the city of Nain and, and encounters this, this widow and her recently deceased son and raises, raises this widow's son from the dead. So please turn your attention to the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Please pay careful attention, for this is the word of God. Well, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died, was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bear stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the young man sat up and began to speak, And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, what is Jesus' attitude towards you right now? There are many answers to that question, or potential answers to that question. But at least one part of of Jesus' attitude and disposition towards you right now is one of compassion. In the midst of, of sins, weaknesses, failures, Jesus' attitude and disposition towards you in Christ is one of compassion. Now, when we think of the work of Christ, a lot of times our mind immediately goes to the finished work of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, which is indeed very important. But sometimes we either forget or underemphasize the ongoing work of Christ at the right hand of the Father. In fact, the author of the Hebrews says that we have right now a risen high priest, a risen high priest, who is still true God and true man. Jesus didn't cease to be human when he rose from the dead. Who is presently standing ready to sympathize with his people, intercede for his people. So the work of Christ is indeed finished, but yet there is an ongoing aspect. He sympathizes, intercedes for his 
people and one aspect of this ongoing work of Christ is his compassion, his ministry of compassion towards us, his people. Now, sometimes it's hard for us to conceive and to imagine, picture, well, what is Jesus' compassion towards us as he is in heaven and we are on earth? This is where the, the gospel narratives are so helpful. Because we see the heart of Jesus in passages such as this, the, the heart of compassion for someone like this widow. We know that that same heart of compassion is displayed towards us as well. So I'd like us to consider then the nature of, of Jesus' compassion, not just for a widow 2,000 years ago, but Jesus' compassion even for us today. And to do so, I want us to consider three points. First, we'll consider Jesus' disposition of compassion. Then we'll consider Jesus' compassion in action. And then lastly, our response to Jesus' compassion. So first, Jesus' disposition of compassion. As I've mentioned, Jesus, in our last narrative, was in the city of Capernaum and is now on the move once again. And he's headed to the city of Nain, and this would have been the southern region of Galilee, about 20 miles or so from Capernaum. And there's a great crowd with him, not only of his disciples, but also of ordinary people. And as Jesus draws near to the city gates of, of Nain, Nain would have been quite a small city uh, in that, during that time. And as Jesus and the crowd that's with him draws near to this, the city gate, they come across a funeral procession. Now in the first century, when individuals died, generally, and most of the time, the funeral would take place that very same day. And these processions would begin in the city and they would proceed outside the city gates to the cemeteries which were, which were outside, the, uh, outside the city. And this is what Jesus is observing as he draws near to, to the city. We learn that a young man has recently died. That's why this, this funeral is going on. It's a funeral of this young man. And this young man was the only child of a widow the only child of a widow. Now this would have been a great tragedy, a great hardship for this woman in the first century. Now women in the first century usually married between the ages of 12 to 15, so they're quite young. And when they got married, they were uh, brought into their husband's household, obviously, and completely dependent upon their household for everything materially and financially. As they were had the task of governing the domestic affairs within the household. But this meant that in the event that the husband died, this woman, this widow, would either be facing destitution and poverty, or that woman would need to have a relative who would adopt and bring them in to their own household. And so this woman has lost her husband, and is likely looking to her son to be that means of support. This woman is likely either is or going to be a part of, of, of his household. But now that the son has died, this woman likely is on the doorstep of, of destitution and poverty. 
As one commentator has said, she, she would have been an orphaned parent. There was no life insurance at that point in time. It was, very, it was a very vulnerable situation to be, to be a widow. This is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul is so adamant in the pastoral epistles that the church needs to be taking care of, of widows because of the vulnerable place that they would be in, especially if they didn't have family to take them in. So imagine with me the emotions that would have been going through the heart, the mind of this widow. Not only is she grieved, sorrowful, because she has lost her only child, but more than that, the fear, the anxiety of the, of the unknown, of how she will live. And Jesus, as he is approaching these, the city gates and, and sees this taking place before his eyes, he, he's putting the pieces together. He sees this, this casket, which may have been open, this young man, only one family member with this casket, although there's a great crowd of, of villagers with, with them. He sees the, the, the tears, which likely would have been streaming down this, this widow's face. The sorrow, the grief, which would have just enveloped her whole body. And Jesus, and Jesus, in verse 13, felt compassion. That's what we read in verse 13. His eyes were upon this scene. And immediately, his heart was moved with pity, with compassion, with, with sympathy towards this individual. As one commentator said, the way of death meets the way of life. He didn't turn a blind eye. He, in, in a very real sense, felt her pain, sympathized with her, even though he, had, he didn't know her prior to this occasion. And Jesus, as he was true human, completely human, like us, except, except untainted from the fall, we know that he had a full range of human emotions. But in human emotions that weren't tainted by the fall of Adam's first sin. And think for a moment how tainted our own emotions have been by the fall. We constantly are overreacting emotionally to things uh, to which we should, be, we should remain cool and collected about. And we're underreacting to things that really should evoke a righteous anger or compassion or pity and sympathy. But with Jesus, we see emotions that are perfectly calibrated. And we see one example of that here as he encounters this woman. And the word that Luke uses in the original language, the Greek language for compassion here, it has connotations to one's guts, one's heart. That is, one's inward being. And this tells us that this, this compassion that's being displayed by Jesus is not just an outward facade. But this is something that was at the very core of his being. It was, in that sense, a virtue, a habit. Virtue is something that resides in our disposition, our being, and our actions then proceed from that. And that's what Luke is trying to tell us here. The very core of, of Jesus' heart, there was a compassion for this woman. So Jesus, indeed, had a disposition 
a disposition toward, of compassion towards this woman as soon as he laid eyes and recognized what was going on. Brothers and sisters, this is so comforting for us today because as the author of the Hebrews says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what that means is that the same heart of compassion which moved our Lord when he saw this widow situation is the same heart of compassion that moves our Lord towards you in whatever you're going through presently. That's amazing reality to think about. In fact, our bond with Christ is even greater than the bond that Christ had with this widow or any of his disciples during his earthly ministry. You might say, well, how can that be? That seems counterintuitive. You're saying that we have a greater bond with Christ, even though he's in heaven and we are on earth, than this widow or the disciples would have had while Jesus walked this earth. And Jesus himself says this. In the upper room discourse in John 16, Jesus is giving his final instructions to his disciples. His disciples are grieved because they recognize their beloved teacher is about to leave them. And Jesus says, no, take comfort. Take comfort. It's better that I would go so that you could have the Spirit. When Christ ascends to heaven, who comes down? The Spirit comes down. So there's a very real sense that Christians who live after Pentecost have a, a greater bond with Christ than, than the disciples, than this widow who would have walked with Christ in his earthly ministry. And Paul says that the closest human analog um, to this bond that the Spirit creates, again, it's the Spirit who creates this bond between Christ and his people. That's why we have that greater bond. And Paul says that the closest human analog to this bond between Christ and his people is the marital bond, the relationship between a man and, and his wife. But even that is just a, fall, a small, faint picture of that relationship between Christ and his people. In fact, Paul will even go on to use the imagery of, of a body. He says that Christ is a head and we are his body. Now, if something on your body hurts, let's say you have a stomach ache or a headache. It's not as if your foot in some personified form, you know, says, you know, too bad for you, head. I'm really enjoying my pain-free day. No, when something on our body hurts, our whole body is in discomfort. And in a similar way, when one member of Christ's body is hurting, suffering, Christ cannot stand off to the side in a dispassionate way. He sympathizes with his people. He feels in his humanity that, that pain. He, he wants to be there in compassion and comfort. It's a member of his body. You know, the great John Owen, as he was the 17th century theologian, he was commenting on this, this aspect of, of Christ's compassion towards his people. He says that Christ is inwardly moved by his people's sufferings and trials. Again, just as Jesus was moved when he looked upon this widow, Jesus is moved. Right now, as he resides in the right hand of the Father, 
when you are going through trials, tribulations, sufferings, whether they be great or whether they be small. You have a compassionate high priest. Just think how comforting it is when you're going through something difficult and you have friends around you, friends who, who are there to give you a hug, to cry with you, to talk with you, to listen to you, to even just spend time with you. It's one of the great benefits of, of having a community around, around us. But we have a, a friend, a comforter in the Lord Jesus Christ that's infinitely greater than any earthly friend. Listen to how one author has put it. Through his spirit, again, the spirit who's created this bond between us and Christ. Through his spirit, Christ's own heart envelopes his people with an embrace nearer and tighter than any physical embrace could ever achieve. So let me ask you, is this how you view Jesus? Do you view Jesus as your compassionate high priest who has this disposition towards you, whether your suffering be small or great, whether it be because you are a Christian or just because you live in a fallen world? Do you see Jesus in this way? Well, Jesus' compassion doesn't just stay within himself. It manifests itself in outward action. As I've mentioned, this is, this is a whole idea behind virtue. Virtue is something that resides in our disposition, but it manifests itself in outward deeds. And so how does Jesus manifest this compassion? This compassion which, was, which he was moved by as soon as he laid eyes on the widow. So let's now consider Jesus' compassion in action. Jesus' compassion in in action. So again, if you look with me at verse 13, we see that almost as soon as Jesus lays eyes on this widow, he's moved to action. He comes to this widow, he, he interrupts this, this procession, he says, do not weep. Do not weep. He wants to, to alleviate the pain, the suffering that this widow is enduring. He wants to wipe away her tears. He doesn't just say, you know, this is a part of the fall, part of what you signed up when, for when you, when you entered this, this world. No, he's passionately compassionate towards this widow. And he wants to do something. Furthermore, we see that he, he comes in front of this, the casket. Again, he stops the funeral procession. And this is a detail that's very easy to overlook. But notice what Jesus does. He places his hand on the casket. Now, of course, Jesus could have just spoken a word from a distance. We saw him do that last week. He is a, his word is powerful. But yet he comes right in front of this, this young man who is recently deceased, places his hand on the casket. Now, why is this so significant? Well, in the Old Testament, every Jew would have known that if you come, within, you come in contact with a dead corpse, you defile yourself. You become ritually and ceremonially unclean and have to go through purification rites. Jesus was willing to become ritually unclean to sympathize with this widow and to ultimately raise this man from the dead. But one thing, as we've seen already in Luke, that Jesus was the only one who was able to confront the unclean and transform the unclean to that which is clean. And we see him do that very thing 
as he now does, does what? He speaks a word. He speaks a word. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that that's the means that Jesus now uses to call into life that which is dead. He says, young man, arise. The ultimate speech act. And this young man sits up. And life flows back into his body. We've seen the, the powerful word of Christ on display as he, already in Luke, as, as has the power to cast out unclean demons. As has the power to alleviate sickness and disease and now to raise someone from the dead. And he did this out of that disposition of compassion that he had towards this woman. Now, as I mentioned, Jesus as Hebrews tells us, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, our Lord doesn't just have a, have a disposition of compassion towards us. He actually ministers to his people. He acts upon them. And he, in this age, he oftentimes uses the same medium and means to minister to us as he did to this widow. That is, through his word. His word is the means by which we experience the compassion of our Lord. The means by which Christ ministers to us in times of difficulty and trial. Now, of course, his, his word ordinarily doesn't just bring us out of our difficult circumstances in this age. We don't have a promise of that. But it is that, that means where we experience the compassion of our Lord. So let me ask you, are you listening? Are your ears open to the word of Christ. Of course, this word does not come to you in a still, small voice in your head. No, it comes to you through the inscripturated word of God. The word that you may be holding in your hands right now. That's the means by which Christ ministers to you. Many of you who have walked through difficult trials in the past difficult seasons of life, you probably have a, a, a passage, a promise, or a, a verse even that, that ministered to you during that time, that you still look back to and you associate that season with that promise or passage. Let that be a reminder to you in the present and the future that we are to be tied to his word as our means of sustenance, perseverance, and comfort as we continue on in this, this pilgrimage. The Lord indeed ministers to us in this age. But we also have the great hope of what Christ will do in his second visitation. Notice that the people cried out when this, this miracle occurred. They said, God has visited his people. God has visited his people. They recognized that this is, God was among them. This is the, in the first coming of Christ, many great acts occurred. But we, we have a great hope that in his second visitation, he will completely wipe away the tears from our eyes. Not just temporarily, but permanently. Alleviate our, all sorrow, suffering, and, and pain in the second coming. But more than that, we have the, the sure hope of a final and permanent resurrection from the dead. This man who had been raised, he was going to die again in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. This wasn't a permanent resurrection. 
But what we're looking forward to is the permanent resurrection from the dead, where we will be raised to life immortal, life everlasting. So we are looking forward to the fullness of that compassion, which is, looking for, which is, which is ahead of us on the last day. So Jesus, his compassion is is displayed towards us through his word and spirit in this age and ultimately on the last day through the resurrection of the dead. But what should our response be to Jesus' compassion? Not only his disposition, his heart towards us, but then also how he actually ministers to us. What should our response be? So I'd like us to now uh, turn to that very question. Our response to Jesus's compassion. Now notice with me the response. I've briefly alluded to this, but notice the response of the crowd to this this miracle of our Lord. We read that fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. Now, this is a wonderful description of the fear of God. Sometimes it's hard to, to we, we immediately think of a servile fear, a fear of punishment when we read of the fear of God. But that's not what the scripture refers to when, when we hear of the fear of God. Notice in this passage what the fear of God produces in this people. Doxology. They glorified God. It was in awe and reverence that this fear produced, as they recognized that they were in the presence of the divine. God was at work behind this act. So as we reflect upon the compassion of our Lord, this doxological response, this response of worship should also be that that instant reaction. Praising Christ for who he is, not just for his finished work, but this ongoing work that, we ha- that he displays towards us, and that future work that we're looking forward to on the last day. But I also want you to see one other thing. Notice that this praise, this doxology, comes in the form of a confession. They confess a truth. God has visited his people. A great prophet has risen among us. Their worship takes the form of, of a of a confession. Now there is a certain aversion to creeds, confessions, catechisms in certain Christian circles as being, you know, smacking of, of tradition, as somehow subverting the scriptures or just being outdated and not, and not needed. But one thing that we see throughout scripture, in fact, you can really do a biblical theology of this theme throughout Genesis to Revelation is that God's people routinely respond to his special acts in redemption by confessing their faith. And that's what we see going on right here in this passage. God in Christ acts miraculously. He raises someone from the dead, and how do the people respond? They confess their faith. They confess an interpretation of this event. And notice these these people, they don't, they don't just quote the Old Testament. They give an interpretation of this event in light of biblical truth, in light of Old Testament reality, but they confess their faith. 
that idea of confessing their faith is robustly biblical. And that's why we see the church throughout the ages, the post-apostolic church, confessing their faith in the early church with the creeds that God is one in essence and three persons that Christ is one person with two natures. The Reformation, that justification is by faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone. So we see that that's another, that's one aspect of this doxology, this worship, is that we confess our faith. And this is part of the reason why we go through our own Heidelberg Catechism, or Apostles' Creed, and confess our faith in our order of worship. It's part of our worship, part of our doxology in response to our compassionate high priest. So brothers and sisters, beloved in the Lord, take nothing else away from this passage, this sermon. Know that if you are trusting in Christ, the same compassion that was brought about by our Lord towards this widow is the same compassion that our Lord Jesus Christ has towards you, even right now this evening.